Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we examine politics, history, literature, culture, and more to surface the wide array of viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem, inviting you to join our community of listeners and readers so you can interact with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. Dr. Danny Brahm, who we were fortunate enough to speak with a couple of years ago, I think it was in June 2021, shortly after the violence between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs in May 21, is the founding director of METIV, the Israel Psychotrauma Center. He is an internationally renowned expert on trauma and resilience, especially in the face of terror and disaster. Metiv is a fascinating organization which is doing really critical work in general in Israel, uh, but now especially. Israelis were obviously all witness to Hamas's brutal attack on October 7th and are feeling a sense of profound shock with the country at war, and everyone has really been affected. As among the leading experts in trauma in Israel, Metiv is working to treat survivors, to support soldiers, parents, teachers, community levels, and as we'll hear in today's conversation, fascinatingly, arguing that Israel is not a PTSD society. We are a society that is shaken, but Danny will explain to us, it is very important to think of Israel not as a society of people who need treatment, but as a society of people who need to learn how to dig deeper in order to find the resilience that we're gonna need in the coming months and probably years. Very grateful to Danny for taking time out of what is an unbelievably busy schedule these days uh, to tell us more about the work that they are doing and more about his assessment of what Israeli society needs at this unique time in Israeli history. So Danny, first of all, thank you very much for for coming back and having another conversation. You and I actually had our first conversation right when Israel from the Inside was really just getting started. We had our conversation, I think, in June 2021, which was right after the trauma of May 2021 with all the internal violence in Israel, uh, which now seems like in a different world, and it seems like a petty problem compared to what we're dealing with now. Uh, you are, as we said in the introduction, really one of Israel's and the world's leading experts in PTSD treatment and theory of treatment and so on and so forth. Uh, and this is a society that is asking lots of questions about trauma in a non-clinical way, trauma in a clinical way, PTSD. So let's talk first of all a little bit about the kinds of settings and the profiles of people and groups that you're now dealing with that five, six months ago, you might not have imagined you would need to deal with? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's really it's a, a pleasure. pleasure. <laughs> um, so Israel is in a very different place after the 7th of October and in the ongoing war. And we've done a lot of work over the past 15 years 
with combat teams coming out of, of service and how to transition into civilian life. Now we're in a different position. Now we have people who've been in combat, active combat for three months, and now they get a month or two months off and they come into society and they look at the world and say, wow, is the world still going on? Because what they've seen and what they've experienced and what they've done is just horrific. And they have to understand, how do I do this transition? How do you do that when you know that you have to transition back into the army in, in a number of weeks? So we got a lot of requests from uh, combat teams uh, who are now in Gaza and who already in, say in, in two weeks we're coming out. Can you do a workshop for us? Because we really don't understand what what is this? How do we see the world now through the eyes of combat? And we have to treat our children and we have to meet our wives and we have no idea. Who's making these requests? Is it coming from the commanders? Is it coming from regular soldiers? Who's reaching out to you? Actually, it's just the regular soldiers and the social workers who work in the army that say, we hear they really need something. Can you do something? Um, in the beginning of the war, actually, it was the army reaching out to us. and Which is a good sign, right, that an army takes trauma seriously? Yes. The army has uh, really recognized the importance of what we do, the Masashihur or Peace of Mind program that we do together with the Jewish communities in the world. Um, and they started co-funding that. Wow. But now it's different and they do recognize the need. And um, so we built a program together with other NGOs and now we're starting to do that. And then the army forgot a bit about this and so we're just starting and not waiting for anyone because the guys are coming out now. What are you seeing with these people that are coming out? Well, what people are saying themselves is, you know, um, I don't understand this world. Um, they're just looking and, and they don't know what to expect, really. Uh, they come home and, and it looks as if they come from a different planet. That's how they say it. Uh, um, now, what I've seen is really horrific. Uh, um, and not only, to be honest, it's not only the soldiers, but also police forces who were active on the 7th of October and so many others that, that have seen things that you never want to see. Uh, so you have to in some way put that somewhere and, and, uh, and process it if, it's, if that is possible and create a sort of a story about it. From what is this? And there are many different stories now about it. Uh, um, there are people saying, oh, this is the Holocaust, uh, which is a very hard story. Um, not sure it's the best story, but there's no good thing at all in, in all of this. Uh, but it tells you, you know, um, we are not going to let people do this to us. Uh, and that becomes, of course, very violent. Um, what can you expect? There are people who are trying to, to adopt a different story 
uh, of what is this conflict and things like that. The people being the soldiers, people at home. Everyone. Everybody. Everybody, everybody here is trying to tell themselves. At this moment, I heard about a an army team that came out and one of the um, members knew a Holocaust survivor and said, let's go there. Hmm. And they went, before they went home, they went to talk with this Holocaust survivor and asked them, is this Holocaust? Hmm. And what I've been told is that he said, guys, this is not Holocaust. We are in a different place. Yes, they've done atrocities, horrific things that were also done in the Holocaust, but this is not the Holocaust. I found that a very moving story. Yeah, I'm very moved hearing it. It's not a Holocaust because why? We can defend ourselves. We have an army. We can hit back. Um, we're not, you know, we're not in the same position. Uh, and basically, what he also said is, is, is be careful not to put that label on it because it brings you to a very different position. I found it also very thoughtful of the team yeah. that they would go to hear this. And has this helped the teams? Uh, Whether it was yes. going to visit so, this Holocaust survivor uh, or any of the other interventions, your sense is that it's helping these people make the transition so back? The, yeah, now it's only starting now. The interventions that a lot of organizations are actually doing, two days mostly, two days or three days, um, just before they go home, just relax, just if they can, just understand how how your body feels full of adrenaline and how every small stimulus basically tells you they're attacking me again, everything is dangerous. And then how do you go back into the world and in your home and in your own bed and understand or your body needs to understand that this is not a place where you immediately get murdered. Right. Now, look, the demobilizations are just really starting. We're just a handful of weeks into the major demobilizations. Uh, so it's early. I know it's early. We don't have lots of data yet. But from this is obviously your world. What, what, what are you hearing about these men, mostly men, a few women, but mostly men um, who are going home to, to wives or girlfriends, maybe children, Again, anecdotally, not necessarily in a research level, but what, what are we hearing about what they're, what's happening at home? Yeah, so they're really saying, I, it feels like I come from a different planet. I look at my kids and I hardly recognize them. And we hear from the wives, they say, this guy comes in after three months, I hardly recognize him. And everything is different. Now, I think... In Israel, everything is different at this moment. Right. We'll come back uh, to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so people ask themselves, what is happening with me? Is this wrong? Do I need treatment? Do I need... What do I need? Well, do these soldiers typically need treatment? Or would you say this is... It, it's clinically interesting because it's a natural process, but they're going to be okay. We know that, that uh, combat soldiers, after they've been in combat, um, most of them will be okay. 10%, maybe 15% um, will have long-term problems and we need to take care of them. Well, 10 to 15% of 
tens of thousands of soldiers who went into yeah. Gaza is a huge number. It's a huge number. Do we have the resources in Israel to give them the treatment that they need? I, I'm not sure. Wow. Uh, um, we do a lot of training at this moment. There's so many. It's as if this is the first trauma. Suddenly we get from all kinds of hospitals. Can you do a trauma? So course? who are you training? Who are you training to offer this treatment? Social mental workers, health professionals, mental health professionals of social all sorts. workers, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, and it's amazing how many people now suddenly say, I want to learn this. Wow. Uh, it's good, but but it's it's almost strange. I mean, we didn't have trauma before. Uh, so um, I'm looking at this and, um, and then there is the idea that so many people say that all the soldiers need treatment. And that's wrong. And it's not only wrong because it's factually wrong, it's wrong as a message. Uh, it's wrong because basically you say, um, count your symptoms, and if you have too many symptoms, then you're in trouble. So you make people worried and you, you look at yourself in a way of looking sort of a witch hunt for symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we need actually is a different language. A language that says, how do we cope with this? How do we support each other? How do we uh, stay a vibrant society? Because we are. So the interesting thing is with these soldiers, they, they say, you know, when, when I'm in Gaza, I don't have a lot of feelings. I don't have deep thoughts. There's no philosophy. It's survival day to day, hour by hour. And I can do that. Uh, um, I don't know how, it goes automatic. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, when you come out, you think, oh, what was this? Was this me? Huh? Um, it's the transitions that are so difficult. And it's another complication here, because with thousands of these soldiers, my son actually among them, uh, they're coming out, but they know they're going back in. Exactly. And, and how does that complicate the transition? So, basically, we're talking about survival mode, which is a hardware mode in our bodies. If you're in danger, it comes up, you don't have to learn it, you do exactly what is necessary without thinking, without feeling, you just do it. And then afterwards, you need to integrate the feelings because they are dire somewhere. Yeah. Now, we are built for survival. We human beings. Human beings. Uh, and uh, the army can sort of shape it a bit, uh, but you don't have to learn survival mode. What we do have to learn is, how do you get out of survival mode? Hmm. And why would you do that? There's no survival value to it. That's why you will find a lot of you know, former combat soldiers who will never sit with their backs to the door in a restaurant. Uh, you won't even notice it because it's natural. They will just not do that. Uh, sort of remnants of survival mode. Now, this in and out and in and out, that is a problem. And basically the system in, in our bodies then says, I'm staying in survival mode. Hmm. I'm not going to risk myself by relaxing. So uh, even when I'm with my spouse, I'm not really with my spouse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, that is a problem. We are talking, we had some 
lectures for the wives of combat soldiers and they're very worried because they come home and they really don't feel the same huh? they're rough they have you know short fuse and 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 then what do you do because the wives also went through a lot right. huh? they 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 are fearful for their husbands and they have to take care of the kids um, there's usually an economic impact also yeah it's a societal problem basically to to see how can we create systems of care that doesn't say uh, you know everyone needs individual therapy okay so we'll come back to community resilience in a bit but in addition to these soldiers uh, Metiv, the organization that you created and that you run and which is so central um, has been seeing a lot of soldiers but you told me that you also visited a hotel there's these hotels yeah. let's talk about that's a whole different population with very serious trauma right I'm not saying it's yeah. clinical PTSD trauma I'm just saying it's a population in trauma it's a population that uh, you know was forcefully um, removed from their homes you know within a few hours they didn't take a lot and then they're in a hotel and when you hear about hotel you think oh nice <laughs> huh? but after you're there for a week and two weeks and three weeks and two months and three months and your whole family in one or two rooms so it's hardly a romantic exactly, vacation exactly so we accompanied one hotel that had 400 rooms and over 1300 people living there um, and no way to do anything you cannot cook you cannot do your normal things uh, so you're there without anything to do uh, um, so we looked at that and we started to to develop uh, um, programs for that but you know people were not interested in talking they, they wanted to wanted do something to, they want to do something so the best program that was uh, basically done was uh, the wife of a psychologist who who works with us she went with him to the hotel and she started swimming lessons for the children and for adults and that became uh, a hit uh, everyone wanted that just doing something and feeling you're accomplishing something uh, um, which was the thing to do uh, and it certainly was not the need for a psychiatrist was not very high unless there were previous problems but you see in these hotels people walking around like zombies uh, um, no one tells them when they should be able to go back or when they have to go back there's a lot of discussion now in, in the government and they're fighting over some say just send them back well, you want to go back while still rockets are falling? I kind of doubt most of them would go back, although if they don't have a financial choice, they might, I yep. guess. Yep. So I know that um, Metiv recently, I don't know how recently, but relatively recently moved campuses. Uh, Why did you move? And, and what did the new facilities allow you to do? So we are, Metiv is affiliated with Herzog Hospital, Herzog Medical Center. and Which is where? which is uh, in, in Jerusalem at the entrance of the city and um, they basically built a building for us where we have something like 35 rooms uh, which allows us to really enlarge our team 
because also we're now a central place for the rehab department of the Ministry of Defense for the whole area around Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas. So we are really awaiting an enormous wave of referrals of former soldiers and we are preparing ourselves to give a, a wide range of services. How many people a year can Metiv treat in any meaningful way? I guess there's different kinds of treatment, obviously, but... Yeah, well, we, we see a few thousand people as individuals, year, as individuals, wow. and we're also starting more and more groups. Well, you're meeting with these soldiers or groups and so forth. Yeah, oh, that is besides that. I mean, in uh, we were supposed to do forty groups of uh, peace of mind in 2023. We had to, you know, postpone sixteen of them because they were in October to December. Uh, um, so 40, 40 groups is about six hundred soldiers. Um, the need is enormous and we will have to get back and basically also uh, in the middle of the program they're being hosted by Jewish communities all over the world. So we really need that connection also. Uh, and I think Jewish communities nowadays also need to feel the presence of Israel in a good way. And the Peace of Mind program is exactly what does that. Look, we're talking few hundred, well, 350,000 soldiers were called up. I don't know the exact number between the North and the South that actually went into combat, but it's many thousands of people. It's many, many thousands yeah. of people. We have about somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 people who are internal refugees, so to speak, displaced people yeah. from the North and the South. You start to add up these numbers, you're getting to a very, very big number of people to say nothing of people like you and me who are just at home working, but yeah. heartbroken about what's going on to this, what happened on the 7th, what's going on in this country. Let's talk about Israeli society writ large. Um, what do we, what, I mean, you're the expert. What do you, what, what, what do you think we're going to look back and say that in 2023, in the last months of 2023, what started? Are we going to be different? Are we going to be able to get beyond this relatively quickly whenever the war ends, whether that's in a few weeks or months in a year, who knows? Or is this going to change us in some way for the lifetimes of many of the people that are now sitting around yeah. tables? So <clears throat> I think that for the first time in many years, maybe in 1973, there was something similar, but we felt that our existence is really in danger. I mean, uh, enemies basically conquering parts of the country and murdering uh, families. Uh, uh, so we really were conquered. And that brings a lot of, of fear of what is this. And, and then we sort of lost our ideas of, oh, what are we doing here? How do we live here if this is the possibility? You know, we have our safe rooms. Right. And after the 7th of October, many, many people started to create a, a lock on the inside of your safe yeah, room. Yeah, we bought one. We yep. bought one, yeah. And, and you think, and it's, it's insane. Right. Huh? But that's what you do. Right, by the way, just as... It sounded insane. So my son, who's in a special forces, whatever, 
um, said to me, he sent me a thing. They were selling them on Facebook. You should buy this. And I said, you know what, Avi? First of all, they're all sold out by now, I'm sure. And second of all, I don't live in the, in the Gaza envelope. I live in Jerusalem. I don't need it. And he wrote me back and he said, Abba, you don't know who's coming into your house from East Jerusalem or right across the West Bank, three kilometers from you. So go out and buy one. And we, we did. It was a different kind, but we bought one of these yep. gizmos. Yep. Um, so we're all feeling a vulnerability in, in, in a crazy kind of a way. Until my son yeah. said, buy it, I would have thought, what do we need it for? But we do need it, I guess. What, who are we going to be? So that is a, a, a very large question. One thing that we shouldn't forget is that besides the crappy and horrible things that, that have been happening and are still happening, there is an enormous amount of volunteering and good stuff, good energy coming out of the people. Huh? The home front's been unbelievable. Yeah. And it almost sounds like, as I heard someone saying yesterday, uh, the, the country nowadays is run by the people, uh, which is interesting and we shouldn't forget that uh, and the question is how do you contain that and continue that um, and that is a major question so we sort of discovered a capacity for resilience right i mean we discovered a lot of those organizations that have been formed during the whole judicial business transformed themselves into hamalim civilian command centers yeah um Israel already had before the war the highest per capita rate of nonprofits of any country in the world. So we have an instinct about helping and getting involved. Um, but something developed now in the last 90, 100 and whatever number of days. Um, so you're saying we have to figure out how to keep this going. Yeah. Starting on the 7th of October, a sort of frenzy started in Israel saying and even the the um, president said at some point everyone needs treatment and, and the president the of the country yes <laughs> and and government ministers said things that, like that and um i became very worried now i set up a lot of trauma services in israel and so i found myself in a in a strange situation that now i'm saying wait 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 this is not reality. Huh? Let's think a bit about what we need. And I got together with two very interesting colleagues, two other centers, one in Tel Aviv, one up north, um, Professor Muli Lahad and Professor Natila Or, and we started to think about what actually do we need right now. As a society. As a society. Uh, because there will never be enough therapists to give everyone, uh, you know, everyone therapy. That is insane. It doesn't happen. It's, it's not realistic. And it's the wrong message, as I said. So we started to think about how do you create resilient communities? And we created a program called Ta'atsumot. It's uh, difficult to... Yeah, it's uh, hard to translate, but sort yeah, of... Uh, the literal translation is fortitude. Yeah. Uh, um, but the idea being that we want to um, basically teach local communities, cities, uh, local authorities to create collaborations within 
and get them to um, to strengthen all kinds of fields. Uh, and we're thinking of the field of uh, education. Uh, what are the kids going through? How do you strengthen them? Community, health and mental health. Of course, this is part of it. But also, and that is new for the thinking, you know, about resilience, uh, um, is uh, culture. A vibrant community also has cultural activities. And, you know, creating that and maintaining that is very important. And also, we're thinking about how do you support, not only financially, but small businesses. Right. Uh, um, so we create a very comprehensive program that we're now going to pilot in a number of cities uh, in order to see how can we hold each other uh, because that is what is needed. After trauma, you don't need a therapist. You need, you need people in your environment to hold you and get through it and build stories. Like in communities, you can do community yeah. theater, uh, playback theater, um, all kinds of things in which people can build their stories uh, and not necessarily cry out for therapy. Why is the story so important? Well, that is what we do naturally. That's what we human beings do. You human mean. beings do after trauma. You have to understand what happened to me and how do I know that it won't happen again tomorrow. So the way human beings do that is also by letting their bodies do get rid of, of the, the survival energy, but also by creating a story, understanding and thinking about it. And, you know, I'll give you a, an example of it. Uh, once I worked a lot with people after traffic accidents. And when you talk with them a year and a half later, they said, you know, they say, well, you know, the first few weeks I didn't dare to drive again. And then someone said, if you don't go back to driving, you'll never drive. No one knows if it's true, but it works. So I started to drive. Uh, and now, a year and a half later, I can drive 120 kilometers an hour <laughs> like everyone else. Well, here, we're in Israel. Right. <laughs> uh, Which may be why they got in the accident in the first place, but that's another story. Okay. Um, but, you know, I'm okay now except for where it happened. Mm. And where it happened, you know, 100 meters before I slow down, I really look well, and another 200 meters, and then I'm free again. And then you can ask yourself, what is that? That's a stra If you ask the same person, is that the only place that is dangerous? They'll say, no, not really. But they build a story which has an illusion in it. Like, the danger is over there, and if you build that story, then you're free in other places. And, you know, we live with positive illusions. Uh, it won't happen to me. I'm an okay person. Once there was a research many years ago that 95% of drivers say that they drive better than the average. average. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's how we live in this world and live with the dangers. You know, I'm okay. What's the national story we're going to tell ourselves? 
So that, of course, now the question is, we're still in the middle. Right. Uh, uh, and I hope in the middle and not before the middle even. Well, who knows? Right. Um, I don't know what story we will be able to build. Uh, that is a major question. And to be honest, I hope that that government thinks about that. Uh, because the story that at this moment we live with doesn't fit. Uh, um, well, it's not a good story right now. It's not a good story, but then you have, you know, together we will win and no one feels we are winning in any way. Right. Uh, so um, we do need to think about what will be the story. How can we um, help people build stories that, that are helpful? Uh, and there are many ways to do that, but it happens also in an automatic way. Uh, um, I know that there are also organizations more on the uh, religious or um, on the side of helping people feel spiritual connection uh, uh, that are now doing programs in all of the communities that were displaced, uh, which is interesting, which is good. Uh, um, so we need a lot of, of um, work on recreating, revitalizing communities uh, because we are beaten down and you feel that. Uh, I had a friend coming over from New York who said this is a very different energy. Uh, there's always this, this frenzy energy in Israel uh, which is sort of attractive and at this moment there's sort of a depressed energy uh, and people not knowing where is this going and there's no one holding this uh, or telling us, uh, you know, what no one can really say. Uh, um, so it's frightening. Uh, but there can be, we can do things. We can really bring people together. And that is at the end of the day, that is what people need uh, during and after trauma. The analogy that you gave to this driver who was in an accident uh, you know, when they when they get back to that spot, that's the place where it brings everything back. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine Simchat Torah next year. Exactly. Uh, you know, I re whenever I walk by where I was when I first heard the explosions, and we were kind of kibitzing with each other. We were we were actually at shul outside, and we heard it, and we were like, "Well, what could it possibly be?" You know, we were kind of joking around. We were a little bit worried, but we were mostly not worried because what could it yeah. be? And whenever I walk by there now, when I think about what was going on in those kibbutzim at the moment that I was sitting on a plastic chair with my talit on, kibbutzing with my friend about, well, what could it possibly be? I think of the horror that was unfolding. Every time I walk by there and I park my car right in front of there almost every day, I get, I get chills. Mm. You know, a little bit of feeling guilty that who was I to be sitting outside chit-chatting when, I mean, obviously, what did I know? Yeah. But, right, but um, where... Are we going to experience another mini round of national trauma come Sukkot and Shmini Yatzeret and Simchat Torah next year? Yes, I think that there will be a lot of feelings around there. And, and you know, now it's close to Yom Kippur, which reminds so many people of the Yom Kippur War. Right. And now it gets, you know... And it was exactly 50 years. We finally were saying, I actually kept the paper from Yom Kippur, not because I obviously knew what was going to happen, but I thought it was such an interesting paper that people were saying... 50 years later, we're finally done. Yeah. There were articles that said it took a half a century, 
but the Yom Kippur War is behind us. Yeah. And then a week later. Yeah. Yeah. So the question then again is, how are community leaders going to lead that? Because you need to give it a place. Because if you don't give it a place, it's all over. Uh, but if you can give it a, a memorialization, if you can you know, make a, a ritual about it, uh, then you have a chance to to that it won't, you know, um, overwhelm you. So Metiv, the organization that you created in head, is going to play a critical role in that, right? I mean, in other words, it's going to be one of the major national resources for helping people think through how to do this. Well, I hope that with this big idea of Ta'atsumot, uh, uh, that we can really influence, um, you know, also leaders, uh, um, mayors and heads of local authorities uh, to think about this in a well-regulated way, in a cultural way, in an almost philosophical, spiritual way, uh, so so that it won't just fly all over the country and... and People feel lost. Have you reached out to them yet as an organization? I mean, has Metiv reached out to mayors, regional councils? No, that is the plan. That's the plan. That okay. is the plan. And, and uh, it's a, a big idea, and, um, but a very hopeful idea. Uh, it, it doesn't speak only about psychopathology and PTSD. It talks about coping. It talks about, you know, we've gone through the Holocaust. Not everyone needed treatment after. Uh, people started to speak on the Mirpeset on Friday night with each other. I've heard that from survivors. Uh, um, maybe there was a need for more therapy than was available then. Okay. But not everyone became totally post-traumatic. Uh, uh, no, you have very, very bad memories. And, and sometimes you're, you're reminded of it and you don't like it, of course. Uh, but... There are ways to give it a place. And human beings know actually how to do that. So I'm very worried about, you know, there are many resilience centers now. And they've become treatment centers. And that's a wrong message again. Right, we don't need treatment, we need resilience. And there's a difference between them. Yeah, yeah. And how to do that. There's a whole methodology. Also. So it's fascinating because Metiv, which has been known for so long as one of the leaders in PTSD, is actually now as an organization under you saying, well, of course, PTSD is an issue and people need treatment and we're going to continue to provide treatment. But don't jump into thinking that this society is PTSD. Think about this as a society that has to actually uh, cultivate the skills of resilience. Yeah. And, and use the energy that is there. there there's a lot of yeah, I don't know if to say positive energy, but it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, the volunteering, the the philanthropy, uh, it's it's enormous. Yeah, uh, and that is really important to look at and understand and and harness it. And so that is the idea. Well, look, I hope that um, it's hard to know when anybody's going to have share of mind. You know, if I was a local mayor or a regional authority, or whatever, I have my hands full in this world war now and whether i'm in the north or the south or it doesn't matter where you are everybody's got their hands full so 
it might be the case that right now not a lot of people would have a bandwidth for, you know, Danny Brown reaches out and says Metiv <laughs> has an idea for building resilience. I might think, okay, well, whatever. But hopefully the day will come when people will really have that bandwidth and then you and your colleagues are going to be situated uh, not only to help individual people who need therapy, which of course there will be, but to help a country, so to speak, recognize that it doesn't need therapy, that it just needs to heal. But that we can heal together. Yeah. And yeah. togetherness is, is important and not only as a slogan that together we will conquer or we'll... Yeah, uh, which is on all the TV screens, we'll win together. Yeah, and no one really f believes that at this moment. Uh, that's one of the problems. If you don't listen to the people, then you can really miss what they need. Well, maybe what we need to do is understand Yachad and the Natsayach, we're going to win together in a different way. And winning being, we're going to, we're going to live together. We're going to survive this. We're going to make it. We will be resilient. Um, and you and your colleagues are going to be at the helm of that. But that's a hugely important message, I think, both for Israelis and for our listeners, many of whom are outside of Israel, to understand that a country uh, that is very sad and brokenhearted is not necessarily a PTSD country, not necessarily a PTSD society. Exactly. Um, so we have to be very careful about the language that we can be traumatized, but perhaps not, you know, clinically traumatized. We went, every one of your listeners went through all kinds of things. And the first thing is not to, you know, where's my psychologist? Right. It's where's my resilience? Well, yeah, you, you look for your your... Uh, people who are close to you and or sometimes you just won't talk to anyone that's also fine as long as there is movement uh, and then that's what we need we need to keep it moving in a sense that you know we're not afraid that the end of it will we'll all be post-traumatic uh, um, no in the end we will come back and and be live with each other and go back to have culture and go back to be productive in our work uh, and we need transition and that is our main challenge at this moment how to do transitions wow it's a, it's a fascinating for me at least fascinating lens through which to look on what we're going on here the transition for soldiers who are coming out and going back in the transition for people stuck in these hotels who think they're going home but not sure they're going home uh, and the transition for a country that says, as you said before, maybe we're at the middle of this war, but maybe we're at the beginning of this war. Who knows? Um, and so this is a fascinating and really, I think, very um, optimistic way of thinking about this country, even in the midst of the darkness that we all feel. And uh, for what you've done for Israeli society for many, many, many years, and what you've done for many individuals for many years, um, and what you're now helping us think through as a society for the future I'm really very grateful to you for what you do and for telling us your story. And we uh, hope you and Metiv and all of your colleagues will continue to have the enormous impact on Israel that you've had in the past. So thank you again. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.